I'm going to invite you uh, to be engaged today in a uh, conversation, uh, a message that uh, has been percolating for a long time. There's much work to be done on it, yet I think it's a, a season to bring it. So the question I'm asking you is this, are justice and mercy on trial? Are justice and mercy on trial? At midwinter this week, I heard a story from uh, Brian Stevenson. He works with the Equal Justice Initiative, and Brian has dedicated his career to helping people who are poor, incarcerated, and condemned. As a human rights lawyer, he's been instrumental in helping to exonerate innocent people on death row, and he takes cases of people who are wrongly accused, condemned, uh, where there's evidence to exonerate. But because they are poor or disadvantaged or colored, they are unable to raise a proper defense. So many cases are justly overturned, rightly overturned, and innocent people are set free. But not all. He shared a story of a young black man who asked him to take his case. And I'll I'll share it the best I can remember. Uh, So, And as I do so, I want to remind us that we're followers of Jesus who are called to stand in the gap for those who cannot, to seek justice, to love mercy. So it was late in the process, and this incarcerated young man had been sentenced to death in the electric chair. And after digging into his case, Brian discovered that there was clear medical evidence that this man was diagnosed with a mental health illness, but that information had been buried during the case. So though the evidence was clear, and it would legally and justly stop the execution, the appeals court denied it, uh, uh, that motion on grounds that it was filed too late. So in the final hours before the execution, this actually went all the way to the Supreme Court. Now there are laws that protect mentally ill people from being executed. So on those grounds, the word finally came down from the Supreme Court, and they ruled that the motion was filed too late. The verdict was upheld on a technicality, and the execution would take place. So Brian faced the hardest conversation he'd ever had as he went to convey the message to the condemned inmate. And when he shared with the young man, this man tried to speak, but he couldn't. He said all, all that came out was a severe stutter, and it got worse as his emotions took over. And as Brian stood there waiting for him to speak the words that just wouldn't come, he flashed back to a childhood memory when he had made fun of a boy who stuttered. His mother witnessed it, and she called him over, and she told him that you go back and apologize to that young man. Um, And, you know, he pushed back, but uh, his mother was firm. And uh, so she said, don't just apologize. She said, then tell him that you love him. He was like, oh, man, no way. I really pushed back against that, but reluctantly he went to him and uh, he apologized and without much meaning he said, you know, and I love you. And the boy smiled and very clearly responded back to Brian, I love you too. All of a sudden on that cell on death row, the condemned young man's words came and he said, I want to thank you for taking my case and fighting for me. Then he spoke just as clearly as could be, the words, I love you. And Brian responded back, I love you too. Shortly after, the young man was executed. In cases like these, it seems like justice and mercy are on trial. 
when the right thing becomes a legal argument and pushback against mercy is fierce and final, we should stop and wonder and ask the question, are we on the right side? You know, in the passage today, the prophet Micah, he makes it clear what side we need to be on. He says, the Lord has told you, you clearly need to be on the side of justice and mercy. You know, this is a discipleship question. This is at the heart of who we are. How does a person live as a follower of Jesus? What does the Lord require of you? I put together today a basic to-do list for a disciple of Jesus, for a follower. And here it is, pretty simple, it's this. To act, to love, to walk. It's, a, it's three simple responsibilities, kind of a job description from the prophet Micah in 6.8. <laughs> to act, to love, to walk. To act, to love, to walk. Say that with me. To act, to love, to walk. So when we put these three things into practice, it actually will change you from the inside out. And not only that, but it will begin to change the world around you. So Jesus called you to follow him and to flavor the world in the kingdom of God. He says, be salt, flavor the world. He commissioned you to light up the world with the good news of the gospel, one person at a time. So how are you going to do it? Well, we're going to do it like this. To act, to love, to walk. So let's start with the first phrase in Micah 6, 8. How does a person live as a follower of Jesus? Here it is, to act justly. It simply means doing what is right. Do what's right. Do the right thing. And so the big question is, right, what is the right thing? Well, the people in Micah's time, they thought the right thing was the religious thing. Kind of makes sense, right? Go to church. Uh, in a rhetorical way, Micah asks this question. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? You know, calves a year old, that's like uh, the, the best offering that you can bring in the Old Testament times. This was the prime offering, the most expensive, really reflected, you know, a, a heart that, that, that wanted to give it all to God. He says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves? Will the Lord be pleased with, a thou with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Again, other things that are, are in the Old Testament were sacrificed as offerings, as a way to worship. You know, it's like, how much? Can I give it all? Can I give everything? Is that enough? Is that what God wants from me? He says, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It's, it's like, you know, the, the, the biggest, the greatest thing I could give is, is my offspring to you, God. Like, like, would that be enough? Although God's not asking for that. And here's the point. Religion is not going to accomplish God's purpose. Religion won't accomplish God's purpose. It's not a bad thing. In fact, it is a, it's, a, it's a proper response. It's a God-honoring response to who God is and what God has done. But the problem comes when worship is segregated from a heart that's motivated to love and do what's right. Do what's right on behalf of others. Micah goes on to say, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. Say that with me. To act justly. Micah was inviting the people of God to rethink what it means to act right. 
It's called changing the narrative, or maybe we could say rewriting our story because, and here's why, because they had it wrong. You know, as Cheryl shared, I served the ECC as a partner to the Town and Country Commission, and some years ago when I was on the Northwest Conference Commission, we were talking about changing the rural narrative. The story for years had been told like this, rural America is in decline. You know, about the middle of the 1960s saw the heyday, uh, peak of rural America during the baby boom. Small towns then started to slowly uh, uh, lose population, and with it went uh, hustling, bustling businesses on Main Street. Farms began to uh, consolidate bigger operations, fewer operators. And when the story was told about brain drain, have you heard that phrase, brain drain? The idea that rural America's kids were growing up, going off to college, and then not returning, and that leaving our rural communities devoid of talented young professionals. You know, as fewer families remained, then our schools began to uh, drop in attendance, the housing market diminished, and thriving communities just began to age. You know, the narrative was set. The writing was on the wall, and it was only a matter of time before towns would disappear and the landscape of rural America would just simply cease to exist. It's a powerful narrative. It really is. And it's one that has been told over and over and over again. And the outcome is a mindset of scarcity and doom. It inhibits investment in the future. It diminishes our hope for a flourishing life. And it impacts institutions from education to government as planning and resources begin to flow away from rural communities into urban centers. So Pastor Greg shared that one of his college professors in Chicago made the comment that uh, in 10 years there will be no more rural ministry. Everything will be focused on urban contexts. Now let me ask you this question. Do you agree with that? No. No, good. We don't agree with that narrative. You know, I, I, we're, we're actually believing something very different than that story, and we're investing in that. We're ready to build for the future here at Bethlehem Church. So flash forward to uh, 21 and 22, these last few years, and we see a migration actually from urban centers to our rural communities. Families find this a great place to live and flourish and raise our families. And one of the key factors is because people realize that relationships matter. In fact, the scripture reminds us that we are made for them. And a covenant conference leader suggested this week that rural America has much to offer. He pondered this idea that rural congregations know how to do life together better than most. He says we are more, relation, less, more relational, less programmatic, and less about just getting things done. We are more about people. Let me say that again. We are more about people. Yes, in rural America, you can live in a fishbowl, especially if you're on Fifth Avenue and you have two picture windows, one on each side of the house, and you can see right through, no running around in your underwear. However, we're discovering that even in urban communities that we have more in common with them than they do with suburbia. So we're retelling the story. We're rewriting the narrative. You know, the decline has slowed. We're seeing new generation of families returning to rural communities. And because of the lifestyle that we offer and the connections it fosters. And here's the key. The story we tell makes a difference in how we live our lives. 
Because a false narrative can have a devastating con- uh, you know, can have a devastating consequence. Believing a false narrative can harm us, but a God-honoring narrative brings life and hope. So let me ask you this question. By what narrative are you living your life? What story are you telling yourself? Then through it, what kind of disciple are you becoming? At the time of Micah, Judah was believing the wrong story. In Samaria and Jerusalem, the poor were being disadvantaged, were being discriminated against ruthlessly. Widows and orphans, they didn't have a recourse. Greed and worldly ideologies had crept into the hearts of the privileged class to the point that power and money and influence no longer reflected the righteousness of God. And the demands of the covenant law were those things that were supposed to help the poor and the, the left out were not being done. And it was devastating not only those who were disadvantaged, but also the souls of the wealthy. So the provisions in the law of Moses to, to, uh, designed to protect the people were no longer practiced, and whole classes of people were generationally exploited and abused without mercy. I don't think we can understand that. It was done without mercy. In Micah chapter 6, the prophet describes a court case between God and the people of Jerusalem and Samaria. See, a verdict is about to be handed down. And it's one that will change the story, the narrative for Judah and Samaria for good. You know, their story was supposed to be the hope of the world. They were God's chosen nation. They were called out of Egypt to demonstrate to the world who God is and how to live in relationship with God and each other. And through the nation of Israel, God's plan is to get his people back. That's the biblical narrative. That's God's upper story. But it's not the one that's being represented by Israel. Not anymore. They adopted another story, a false narrative that has been spreading uh, for generations. And they wrongly believed that as the people of God, as descendants of this promise of Abraham, that they are somehow immune to the judgment of God. That it doesn't matter for them. They believe that the promise somehow shields them from the divine consequence of their disobedience. So they're blind to the fact that practicing a false religion is leading them to a guilty verdict. They're guilty. So what's the cure? To act justly. To do what's right for those who can't change their own situation. To advocate for justice for the disadvantaged and the downtrodden. To step in to make things right. And I think for the disciples of Jesus today, it might require a renewed narrative on our part. It might require for us a posture, a posture, a place of being openly honest to the difficult, uncomfortable realities of our world. To be willing to ask the hard questions and then listen to the hard answers, especially when we don't want to hear them. That's my challenge. I have a hard time listening when I don't want to hear it. And I'm going to push you a little today. You're thinking, oh, great. I'm going to push you a little because I love you. Let me say that again. I love you, and I'm going to push you today. I'm going to be something I'm uncomfortable being, and that is unpopular. I'm going to be unpopular in what I say. Because I think we're ready to wrestle with the realities of our time in a God-honoring way to begin to change the narrative. 
You see, our sisters and brothers in Christ that are not like us, our ethnic brothers and sisters, recognize some things that I don't think we acknowledge. So I'm going to ask a few questions, probing questions, that I think they require answers to be wrestled with. Now, listen to how I'm saying these and understand that these are opportunities for us to ponder and question. Here's the first one. When classes of people, based on ethnicity, are incarcerated and in poverty at rates many times other ethnicities, is it possible that unbiblical discrimination exists? Is it possible? And if it is possible, could it be because there's an existing underlying narrative that suggests that some ethnicities are not as valued as others? Is that possible? And if it is possible, is it okay? Is it right in the eyes of God? And I think every one of you today are going to say, well, of course that's not right. It's not right. We are all equal in the eyes of God. So if it's not right, then here's the question that tends to get me then do you have the responsibility as a follower of Jesus to do justice and make it right? I think the answer is yes. The Bible says, do justice. You know, the Constitution of the United States said that black people were three-fifths of a person. Not a whole person, three-fifths of a person. It did not provide liberty and justice for all, only some. Men and women were enslaved until the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 and then they had to fight a war in order to enforce it. But then it was replaced by segregation for another hundred years. And then that is replaced today by incarceration. And I say this by inviting you to see the numbers. Check it out. It tells a story. It suggests, and pay attention to my language, it suggests... A narrative that black people are more dangerous and more feared than white people based on the color of their skin. Is that narrative right? Indigenous people are labeled savages to be conquered. They were treated that way until 1969. Kids were forcibly removed from their homes to be indoctrinated and enculturated. And in 1969, I think I was in second grade. I can't imagine what that would have done to me if that were my story. You know, the doctrine of discovery, which is a papal decree from centuries ago, declared that the church sanctioned the forced conversion and conquest of native populations in the Americas, and it happened by any means necessary. It's an unbiblical doctrine. There's no basis or foundation in the Bible for it that has been decimate, or it's decimated generations of indigenous populations. And unless the narrative is changed, and, and here's the challenge, unless the narrative is changed and the story is told, the outcome will remain that indigenous people are not equal in the eyes of God. But instead, God reveals a very different story, one where justice rolls down like a river and righteousness like a never ending stream, reaching to all places, all populations, all people with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
God's justice reveals that every human being is worthy and has dignity as made in the image of God. And a person is who, who is sought after and loved by Jesus Christ who died for them so that there's neither Jew nor Gentile or slave or free, nor is there male or female, for we are all one in Christ. So let me stop here and declare this. And you may look around just a moment. Just do that. Look around a moment at each other. Smile. <laughs> all right. What, what do we all have in common here today in this sanctuary right now? This isn't always the case, but right now in this sanctuary today, what do we have in common? We're all white. I want to declare to you that we are a multi-ethnic congregation. Not by definition, it would change a lot more, it would require a lot more diversity than we have right now, and it's probably not possible in our community. However, we are one in Christ in spirit, which means that we will stand with our brothers and sisters of every ethnicity as one together in Christ. Everyone is welcome, everyone belongs, everyone matters. And I'm quite sure that we won't live up to this perfectly. But we embrace the posture that in the eyes of God, every one of us is invaluable, made in the image of God, and that we treat each other with dignity and respect, no matter our heritage, because we are followers of Jesus. So how does a person live as a follower of Jesus? You act justly, and you love mercy. In 1999, I went on my first international mission trip to Guatemala. A team of uh, farmers, electricians, helpers uh, help, uh, went to Aquabiva Children's Home, an orphanage in Guatemala City, and we worked in a facility in Chimaltenango up in the mountains, a new place for this children's home. I was uh, asked to accompany the group because I had worked with an electric electrician, so they called me an apprentice and figured I had skills. One of the group was Darlene Bratberg, and she's a, a farm wife and a grandma whose heart is as big as they come, Darlene. And she would wake up early every morning, join the kids for worship before the sun came up and before breakfast, and then uh, get on an old bus and travel up to this work site. Uh, they used to call them chicken buses because there were chickens on the bus. Spend all day surrounded by more kids up at the work site, and, the, and then come back to the orphans in the children's home, and just be a grandma to them till lights out. You know, the night before we left, we shared our experiences with each other, uh, with the whole orphanage, and the kids just surrounded us, and they gave everyone a huge hug, and they just really wouldn't let go. We were all teary-eyed, and Darlene, she was just sobbing, and she deeply, deeply loved these children. And not only that, but she gave herself to them and became like a grandma, full of compassion and love for each one. And when she left the next morning, she simply said, I'm leaving a piece of my heart behind. Darlene had grandkids. She now has great-grandchildren of her own. And yet she traveled to Central America, risking much to demonstrate the mercy and compassion of Jesus Christ to orphan children who have no family, who have no hope apart from their family there at Aquaviva Children's Home in Chimaltenango. And she showed me a different narrative for a Jesus follower. She demonstrated what it means to be or, or, or to deeply love mercy. 
And some of you I know have already experienced that. You, you've done that. You've, you, you've gone to different cultures on mission trips. You've uh, served in places where mercy is necessary. That trip changed my life. And through it, I experienced a new narrative of what it means to love mercy as Jesus loves mercy. You know, my eyes were open to a world and a reality that's far different than my own. And I witnessed the love of Jesus through the hands and feet of people who sacrifice every day for those children at that children's home to give them a safe place to live, to, that they can have food, that they can learn about Jesus, and that they can have hope for the future, a good future, because they matter. Does it seem like judgment and mercy are on trial in our world? that it no longer seems to fit or is fashionable or is necessary or sensible. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes this scene where a final verdict is announced. You know, those who practice mercy and justice are rewarded in the kingdom of God, but they're surprised. They don't realize why this is. And the king says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. Simple thing. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus says, if you do it to others, you do it to me. If you don't, you don't do it to me. That Micah verse struck me throughout that trip in Guatemala. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. So how does a person live as a Jesus follower? You act justly, you love mercy, and you walk humbly with God. And our town and country churches in the ECC, they get this, and they, they know how to bear the cross as they follow Jesus. Pastor Andrew Morell in Marion, Indiana, he serves on the Town and Country Commission. He planted a multi-ethnic congregation in a town on the site of the last northern lynching. It's one of the most famous lynching photos in the United States. Thousands of people came out to watch it. Thousands of church people on Sunday afternoon. Last year when the team visited Greensboro, North Carolina, we went to a rural church and there was a big cemetery with a big tree. We went out there and the uh, those told us to, you know, to be careful, there's some stones around that tree. And when we asked about it, they said, well, the stones represented the graves of the slave people who were buried there. They were enslaved, and when they died, they were just buried under the tree, and a stone marked their grave. We took a moment to pray at those graves, a powerful moment. Andrew's enslaved ancestors traveled through those places to get to Marion and to a free state, and he's part of writing a God-honoring narrative. He's doing justice. And Jesse Slimak from uh, Town & Country Church in Pennsylvania, he began a shalom circle, a feeding program with the Sisters of Mercy in his community, gathering with others around to provide a meal. But not just that, 
the meal and community together with those in the community. Pastor, I, I would say we do that every Wednesday night here too. Pastor Cindy Riley in Swannanoa, North Carolina, she planted a town and country church for people who have been hurt by the church and opens their doors to welcome in all people, anybody who has been de-churched and has somehow been hurt by the church. And the amazing thing is God is using that. The Holy Spirit is gathering people who have been pushed out of the church are now coming back together to be a fresh expression of that church. And Gina Rico in Kerman, California, she serves in the Central Valley in a covenant church that 25 years ago planted uh, Lavina a thriving Latino-Hispanic ministry. And now, 25 years later, that church plant, that baby, that child has now adopted in the parent church, the white ethnic church, uh, to become together a multi-ethnic congregation that meets and serves the Lord together. See, God is doing a new thing. And the church is in a new season. And we are seeing expressions of the church in new ways as God moves to allow his church to reach those who have been hurt and wounded and welcome them in and brought into the kingdom of God to pursue all of God's mission. So how do we live as a follower of Jesus? Good news, I'm wrapping up. You act justly. You love mercy. You walk humbly with the Lord. And the church will truly be good news to the lost. Jesus sums it up like this. So in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. One day, the story will be finished. One day, God's plan will be complete. And the trial of justice and mercy will come to an end. And a verdict will be handed down. Friends, justice wins. Mercy wins. And I want to be with you when the verdict is announced, celebrating the goodness of God. As the praise team comes forward today, I want to invite us to a moment of prayer. As we prepare our hearts, go ahead and stand. Lord, all because of your goodness, all because you have called each one, your children, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Lord, you have called us together, counted us worthy. And Lord, as your followers, as those who have put our faith and trust in you, we are reminded today that you call us on behalf of others in the world to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. Lord, we don't see all these things perfectly. We've been told stories and narratives that seem right, but may not. And others, Lord, that are good stories of faithfulness through the generations. And I ask today that you help us discern, Lord, what is right and what is true. And Lord, to ask some deep, hard questions, to be open to your Spirit's leading. And Lord, that we too may be found just and merciful and humble before you, so that we may continually praise and glorify your holy name. God, you are good. Amen.